Hey folks, welcome to the AABIP podcast. This is Samir Avasarala from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. I'm your host for this episode. Thank you all for joining us today. It'll be an excellent discussion about a topic that is nerve wracking to some degree for all of us, bronchoscopy in the pregnant patient. Bronchoscopy in a pregnant patient is an uncommon, higher than usual stake scenario. The airway is important as ever. A careful coordination between the bronchoscopist and anesthesiologist is essential for clinical success and maximal safety. One thing we can all agree on is that the most experienced bronchoscopists should be performing these procedures. But what about the other things that we need to keep in mind? Today, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Uma Manur join us. Uma is a professor of anesthesiology and the director of OB anesthesiology at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. She has specific experience in the intersection of OB anesthesiology and bronchoscopy. Welcome, Uma. Thank you, Samir. Thank you for the invitation. Uma, do you have any relevant conflict of interest to disclose? No, I don't. Excellent. As a reminder, the views expressed on this podcast are those of the speaker and mine and not necessarily endorsed by the AABIP. With the formalities done, let's get started. Uma, you have significant experience in OB anesthesia. How many times have you come across the absolute need for bronchoscopy in pregnant patients? Yeah, as you are aware, this is not a very common scenario in pregnancy. Our anesthesia team has come across maybe around eight to 10 times in the last 20 years where there is an absolute need for bronchoscopy in a pregnant patient. I may have been involved directly or indirectly with some of these cases. So it's not very common, maybe around eight times. Yeah, I agree. So not very common, but a very, very high stakes scenario for everyone involved. When when you do come across these cases, are you usually performing them at a bronchoscopy suite at your shop or are they done in a OBOR ready for a crash C-section? So whenever we have a case like this, we have a multidisciplinary conference with the bronchoscopists, obstetricians, maternal fetal medicine team, and anesthesiologists to plan for these procedures. And also this depends on what resources are available in the hospitals, like a community versus tertiary care hospitals. Depending on the complexity of the patient and gestational age, the decision can be made about where the procedure needs to be done, either bronx suite or the OR. If the patient has significant comorbidities or if the fetus is viable, like around 24 weeks or more of gestation, then we prefer to do the case in the operating room. Continuous fetal monitoring can be used and OB faculty should be available in case we need to do a crash or a stat cesarean section if necessary. Yeah, I think it's always important, regardless of which type of bronchoscopy is being done to make sure all the resources that you may potentially need and you're in the right setting to maximize uh, safety for everyone, specifically the, the patient at hand. So, you know, I'd like to kind of pick your brain and walk through a few scenarios of airways that we typically use for bronchoscopy. I, I'd love to hear what's what you keep in your mind that's specific to patients that are pregnant. One thing we come across is uh, patients who have subglottic stenosis or patients who which we may need higher access or higher access to higher station lymph nodes. The LMA and one of the brands that is used commonly is the IGO is a great tool for us. Uh, there's always a bit of resistance using this airway in a pregnant patient. You know, what are your thoughts and considerations? 
He said the pregnant patients are considered to be full stomach after the first trimester due to hormonal changes at the beginning and later due to the anatomical changes. So the, if patients are appropriately fasted overnight and if they are less than 20 weeks of gestation, I don't mind using an LMA. Typically, I prefer using IGEL, like you said, for these procedures because of the ease of placement. It's very easy to place them and you have a great seal pressure. And also orographic tube, you can place an OG tube to suction out the gastric contents. Say so, uh, there is obviously a theoretical risk for aspiration, which is small, but still there. Um, of course, the bronchoscopist always prefers having an LMA, but if they are past 20 weeks, I don't usually place LMA. And if ventilation is difficult, even if you placed an LMA, if ventilation is difficult, then we take it out and then put an endotracheal tube. Of course, for each pass, you have to come out and the procedure may be prolonged, mm -hmm. but um, you know, we still can try if they are early in pregnancy, but later on, we try to avoid using an LMA. Sure, now with picking the appropriate size, let's uh, just discuss eye gels for a second. With the edema and things that occurs uh, in the airway of a pregnant patient, are there any specific considerations you, you take with size or kind of stick uh, what you normally do with a, a patient's uh, weight? Because that, that's kind of modified based on their um, pregnancy status too, right? Yeah, but we just use a standard eye gel. We don't really base um, specifically for that. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shift gears just a touch to something a little bit more secure. So endotracheal tubes, um, we request these uh, airways to be placed a lot for patients that were doing bronchoscopy before. Usually eight, but more commonly eight and a half or larger for therapeutic bronchoscopies that we're doing. Um, any specific considerations you, you keep in mind for endotracheal tube placements uh, in pregnant patients undergoing bronchoscopy? Um. There is, of course, mucosolidema and capillary engorgement, like you said, in the pharynx, larynx, and trachea during pregnancy. And um, for routine cases like C-sections, we use a smaller sized endotracheal tube, like six and a half to seven. But in non-pregnant patients, you use a nine millimeter endotracheal tube for EBUS for pregnant patients, at least an eight and a half. When you use that, we just need to be mindful that this can cause damage to the glottis and risk for subglottic tissue injury later down the road. But I think eight and a half is what you all prefer us to use. Yeah, usually that gives us enough room to use whichever scope we need to, uh, the therapeutic or the EBA scope, which is a touch larger and give us just enough real estate through the endotracheal tube to, to ventilate safely. Yeah. Now, I'm gonna to get to likely the most nerve wracking scenario, uh, rigid bronchoscopy. Uh, do folks typically employ jet or conventional ventilation for your shop for rigid bronchoscopy? We typically use an open jet ventilation for rigid bronchoscopy in our institution for non-pregnant patients. But during pregnancy, of course, the PaCO2 is around 30 to 32 millimeters of mercury due to hyperventilation. And bicarbonate is 20 due to um, increased excretion and pH is roughly around normal because of the partial correction. We place an arterial line all these pregnant patients undergoing rigid bronchoscopy for frequent blood gas sampling. Um, in non-pregnant patients, we see the PACO2 climb almost 
more than 60 millimeters of mercury and pH goes to 7.2. But in pregnant patients, we need to place close attention to gas exchange as hypercarbia can cause decrease in placental circulation. So if we have trouble with um, using jet ventilation, then we may resort to conventional ventilation. Excellent. So that's, uh, that's, that's quite interesting. The arterial line that's placed regardless of gestational age or after a certain period? After a certain period, after the first trimester, I would automatically place an arterial line. Okay. Okay. So we went through a few scenarios with different types of airways. And I, I would say ones that use general anesthesia, we, we likely covered um, most, if not all the airways used in bronchoscopy. So regardless of which of these airways is considered, anything special you keep in mind uh, when you're doing induction for these patients? Sure. In a pregnant patient with no comorbidities, if they are totally healthy, I would use propofol and succinylcholine for induction and follow with a non-depolarizer after succinylcholine wears off because we do rapid sequence inductions on all these patients. And um, if they have asthma, then I prefer using ketamine just because it has bronchodilation properties. The only time I would use etomidate is if the patient is hemodynamically unstable. And one thing to remember is all these pregnant patients should have a left uterine displacement at mm -hmm. all times to avoid supine hypotension syndrome. Maternal blood pressure needs to be maintained and hypotension needs to be avoided as it directly impacts the fetus as there is no autoregulation in pregnancy. So no matter what induction agents you use, you have to be careful and maintain the blood pressure at all times. Absolutely. So let's, uh, we talked about induction a bit. We, we talked about the procedure a bit too with the different types of airways and the special considerations for that. What, what about after the procedure? What about in the recovery area? You know, whether that's in the endo suite or the, the PACU, uh, what special things are you keeping in mind? Um, when um, the case is almost, uh, we're emerging, I try to place an LMA just as a bridge so that there is less desaturation and it helps in smooth awakening, especially after a rigid bronchoscopy. And we still pay close attention in the recovery room once they're extubated. And once uh, the patient has come to the recovery room, we monitor the fetal heart tones. That is something we need to keep in mind because we look for fetal heart tones before the procedure and after if they are across there around roughly 16 weeks or 20 weeks, mm -hmm. we monitor the fetal heart tones. So putting everything together, uh, I, I would say as bronchoscopists and, and pulmonologists, we're very aware of the anatomy, physiology, and the technical uh, skill that's needed to get these procedures done in an efficient and safe manner. Um, in this these example clinical scenarios we're talking about with pregnancy, I think it adds a different uh, layer, several layers of complexity. And um, we may not be aware of those because this is not a situation that comes up over and over again, like, like you mentioned earlier uh, in this podcast. In your opinion, what are the common pitfalls or misconceptions that you've noticed bronchoscopists uh, talk about and endorse when it comes to bronchoscopy in pregnant patients? So I think the firstly, the anesthesiologist always prefers endotracheal intubation sure. in a pregnant patient. The minute we hear pregnant patient, we want to put an ET tube. <laughs> <laughs> but the bronchoscopist 
it's easy to do the procedure if they have an LMA. So the, there we already have a difference, but of course we work around whatever is necessary. Even if we place an LMA and we cannot ventilate, then we automatically change to an endotracheal tube. So the LMA in pregnancy, mostly it's used as a rescue device where sure. we cannot, if we cannot intubate a patient, then automatically I put an eye gel just as a rescue until we get help or until we get um, some video laryngoscopy that we could use. So secondly, we want to place a smaller size endotracheal tube. Of course, the minute we say pregnancy, we want to use a six and a half or seven millimeter <laughs> endotracheal tube. But when we come to these EBUS procedures, the bigger the size of the endotracheal tube, the better it is. <laughs> so I think those are both um, uh, something that we worry about. But the goals for both bronchoscopists and anesthesiologists are the same. We want a shorter procedure time. We want to get done as quickly as possible. And of course, safety for both mother and baby. That is our goal ultimately. Absolutely. One other thing I wanted to pick your brain about is uh, regardless of the airway that's being used or the indication for the procedure. Do you see yourself uh, requesting for or your bronchoscopist requesting for some type of systemic corticosteroid during the case or midway through or right before it gets started? No, actually we have not come across that, but um, hmm, I have not come across systemic bronchosteroid, uh, corticosteroids before. Yeah, I only ask, uh, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's standard of care, but at, at times, uh, depending on the clinical scenario, of course, um, dexamethasone in different doses, uh, we ask for, uh, depending on how much airway edema that we see, or, or sometimes for rigid bronchoscopy as well. I just uh, wanted to see if it became more commonplace in the setting of patients um, who are undergoing this procedure who are pregnant. Probably it would, it makes sense to give it, so to decrease the airway edema. Uh, but I personally don't have very much experience with that. Now, the other thing I want to ask you is with your experience uh, doing these cases uh, over your career, uh, just a, a ballpark number, how many times have you come across a scenario when a bronchoscopy was requested and you said, no, this is, this is ridiculous. There's no reason this needs to be done right now. Uh, not really, because, you know, usually the bronchoscopists think about it and we all want to wait until they are delivered, but there is only few scenarios where they want to really do it. Where sure. It's worsening the patient, you know, of course, like subglottic stenosis where it gets worse. Um, almost, you know, most of them get worse during pregnancy for all these hormonal uh, reasons, but um, I've never really had to argue so far. Yeah, I think with all patients, we do a careful risk-benefit analysis, uh, but for these, we, we really perform the bronchoscopy if um, only absolutely indicated, whether that's for a diagnosis that's going to change things for mom and baby or a therapeutic procedure that's really going to optimize things uh, for the mom to have a safe delivery of the baby. Have. Exactly. All right, Uma, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put you on the spot here. Who should be doing these cases? The general anesthesiologists, the cardiothoracic anesthesiologists, or OB anesthesiologists? I personally think any anesthesiologist can do these procedures as long as they're familiar with the anatomic and physiologic changes associated with pregnancy. 
Something to keep in mind is pregnant patients rapidly desaturate during mm-hmm. induction and um, due to decreased FRC and increased O2 consumption, it's like, you know, within a minute, they can start desaturating because the apnea time is so important that one minute. And we routinely, after we induce, we give small breaths so that, you know, that one minute apnea, sometimes if you cannot intubate within that one minute, they're already desaturating. Right. And um, difficult intubation, of course, is like 10 to 12 times more common in pregnant patients than non-pregnant patients. So that is something that everybody needs to keep in mind when they're dealing with pregnant women. And the other thing is, you know, left uterine displacement. And any general anesthesiologist knows all these things. But if the patient has poor cardiac function, then probably a CV anesthesiologist may be preferable. And if possible, and sometimes, you know, you're pre-oping these patients early on. And if on that particular day, there is an OB anesthesiologist and CV anesthesiologist around available, then probably they can be both helping with the case. One can be primary and the other can be just consulted. So we have done that in, a few cases where, you know, OB anesthesiologist could be primary and CV is just consulted for that, or, you know, mm-hmm. CV anesthesiologist primary and OB is consulted. So, but again, it's schedule permits and you have enough people, or at least you can do just um, a, a consult without directly being involved too. So I think anybody could do these cases, but just need to pay extra attention to all these pregnancy in um, anatomic and physiologic changes. Sure. As far as, uh, you know, demeanor for these pre- patients and cases, I, I approach it as, you know, with the desaturations that you mentioned, you know, stay calm, but act quickly uh, because your seconds matter a little bit more here than uh, other rigid bronchoscopies where a, a little bit of desaturation is probably going to be tolerated very, fairly well. Exactly. And, you know, it sounds like in, in summary, you know, take all the help you can get with these yeah. patients, correct? Exactly. And, and, you know, whenever I'm dealing with a general anesthetic, even for a C-section on a pregnant woman, I definitely leave an eye gel up there with the lubricant right there. So in case I run into difficulty, that's the first thing I use to rescue the airway. Because when they are desaturating, nobody functions. You know, it's like um, it goes downhill very quickly. And it's only sometimes you think a minute is too late, but that minute they, you know, the sats go down very, very quickly. D- definitely some high stress scenarios yes. um, when, when coming across um, these type of patients and, and help providing the best care for them. So time for closing remarks. Anything you feel we left out that's important to discuss? Not really, but you know, you got all the important questions that we were able to <laughs> I think it is the same with any institution. We all think pregnant patients always need an endotracheal tube, no matter where, uh, what gestation they are. But I think after the first trimester, we generally typically use endotracheal tubes instead of LNAs. Uma, this has been fantastic. I can't thank you enough. I'm sure our listeners will gain many bits of knowledge from uh, listening to your expertise in this specific clinical scenario. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Samir, again for the invitation. Okay, that awkward yeah. silence was just to give us some uh, splicing space in the editing. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I offered anything at all, Samir. <laughs>
No, th th this was this was wonderful. As I, I said, it, there's, it's not oh, like there's a, a difficult situation, and you know, uh, this this podcast is really designed. So I'm not sure if all of us have come across uh, doing these procedures for a pregnant patient during our fellowship or interventional. Yeah. It's it's not exquisitely common. Yeah. So this, I'm hoping this podcast helped set the stage to have some discussions with um, the anesthesiologist at XYZ Institution when a current IP fellow listens to it and are faced with the task of doing this for a pregnant oh, patient. Oh, you know, something I just should have said, you know, the most experienced bronchoscopist also should do this procedure. Um, we can try to split. You, you know, know what? what? I need I need to re-record the um, the intro. And I can just uh, splice it in you, there. So and, you know, uh, maybe, you know, I thinking back, I've not used DEXA in a long time ago, but whenever I think I have airway edema, I usually use Dex, dexamethasone. If I have, like, if I attempt two or three times uh, for an intubation, I automatically give dexamethasone. But here, unless they're difficult, I mean, it's still thinking about this, it would probably be ideal to give it. I, I don't have any. Uh, yeah, we don't have any data clinical or, data to back that yeah. up. For me, yeah. it's more. The, yeah, like you said, I do it if I have difficult. If I have attempted two or three times on somebody for intubation, and then I'm like automatic. It's not pregnant or non-pregnant anybody. Then I'm like, oh, okay, it's good to give some dexamethasone. But um, yeah, like I mean, it's okay. I don't think that. But um, where do you think I should say about that most experienced bronchoscopist? So, I'm gonna re-record the intro, as far as the intro as in uh, right before we jump into the question. So I'm gonna give a two second silence and then I'm gonna say bronchoscopy to pregnant patients on comment. And then at the last line, I'm gonna put, I think we, you know, I'm sure we all agree the most experienced bronchoscopy okay. should be Perfect. performing this procedure. Perfect. That way, that way it covers it's it. already covered. Yep. yep. So awesome. give me two seconds here and I'll start saying that. Okay. 